Dotnet Rocks episode 655 with guest Brian Noyes, recorded live Monday, April 11th, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter, and now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much and welcome back to .NET Rocks. Carl Franklin, Richard Campbell here with you for the next hour or so. Mr. Campbell, how are you, sir? Sir, no rest for the wicked. I am, uh, now I got the house thing going on. Yeah. Yeah, I'm moving into a new house and been spending, I spent all morning cleaning gook out of you know, stovetops. And-, and now's the chance, right? Yeah. This is I, the time. I just heard an interesting statistic by a friend of mine that says you got to paint before you move in because if you say to yourself, oh, I'll paint that room later, you know, in the average time it takes for your, for uh, people to get around to it, four years. Nice. Interesting statistic. Now, I, I, it's interesting about having that timeline on you. That's like, if I can't move in till I do X, you'll get X done. That's right. You put yourself on a little deadline, and there you go. It's Make good. you work for it. Hey, man, let's get into Better Know Framework. All right. Well, we're going to do something a little bit differently today for Better Know Framework. We're actually going to let the guest tell us a little bit about the framework. Very Mr. Nice. Brian Noyes, are you on the line? I am indeed. Hello. Hey, how's it going? We'll uh, we'll read your bio later, and which should be funny because, uh, well, you'll see. But uh, tell us uh, what you're thinking about these days for a class you can share with us. All right. Well, something that's uh, near and dear to my heart just about every day is uh, bindings in WPF and Silverlight. Mm-hmm. And under the covers of bindings are something called a binding expression that usually you don't have to deal with it at a programmatic level. But once in a while, it's a handy little trick to know that you can drop down there. Uh, programmatically get a reference to a binding through the get binding method on your element Mm -hmm. and then call source updated or target updated on it. And that allows you to programmatically tell it to push a value either from the source to the target or from the target to the source. Nice. So binding sort of takes away the need to, you know, update uh, UI and all that kind of stuff. But sometimes you want to, you have data that you want to change programmatically. So you just call these methods, boom, everything happens. Exactly. The main place I run into it is writing uh, behaviors as a as a way to bridge between a view and a view model. Yeah. Nice. System.windows.data.binding expression. Learn it, know it, love it. Thanks, Brian. Sure. Awesome. And uh, Richard, who's talking to us? Grabbed a comment off the fancy new website from yeah. show 650, which was Iende does transactions with RavenDB. Right. And this is a question from Andrew Trevers, who said, when I have talked to people in the past about NoSQL databases like RavenDB or MongoDB, which are both shows we've done, the question I usually have is, what would be some differentiating factors that would lead me to choose RavenDB slash MongoDB slash WhatoverDB over a relational DB? Mm. Most often, the response I get back has to do with something about being able to scale out and performance. However, do document databases like RavenDB also have a place in smaller business applications? To me, the simplicity of a database like RavenDB would lend itself nicely to usage in a prototype scenario or even an application where you have a fairly small schema. I often find in these cases the usage of an RDBMS is more of a reflex than a well-considered choice. 
and that's from Andrew Travers. And Andrew, I totally agree. I think one of the things that's driving the NoSQL movement in general is this idea that we just got used to storing everything in relational databases, even when we shouldn't. You know, you've always got that wing nut table that sort of sits by itself. It's basically like notes, yeah. settings, crap like that. Right. What's that doing in a relational database? True. And the other point he makes is it's not always just about performance. That we get sucked into that go faster, go faster, go faster. And we know perfectly well the vast majority of CRUD apps never stress the database resource in any way. Mm. So I think you've got to go through the big issues, which is really what we pushed on Oren about, which is, is your data safe? Can it be backed up? Can it be accessed in a useful way? Use whatever data store you want. Also, a lot of people uh, expressed some concern over the because uh, they couldn't hear his understand what he was saying. So, in order to fix that problem, Oren is going to uh, get a, a vocal cord transplant and move to the United States, so the telephone <laughs> won't be so bad. He is so. quite Israeli, and I think we had tried very hard to get him face to face because with a better microphone, he's uh, easier to understand. But yes, we do everything we can. That. You got a guy that smart, it's worth slowing it down and listen close. Absolutely. And uh, thank you very much for that comment. And if you have other comments, you can leave them on our website, .netrocks.com. By the way, we have a mobile website. So if you hit it with a mobile phone or a mobile device, you get a very stripped down, easy, na navigable interface to all the shows. And you can just find what you want. And uh, that's it. And it's just MP3 files, so if your phone can handle it, it'll just dump it straight to your phone to, to listen. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, let's introduce Brian formally. And this is funny because we before the show, we were looking up uh, – he sent a new bio. And just for fun, I went to look at the last time he was on the show, which was uh, show 584. And that was quite a while ago. Yeah, it's 100 shows ago. Yeah, 100 shows ago. And, and this is what his bio says. Brian Noyes is the chief architect with iDesign, Microsoft's regional director for Virginia, and a Microsoft most valuable professional. Brian's latest book is Data Binding with Windows Forms 2.0. And we had a good chuckle over that. Yeah, it's time to update the bio. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Windows Forms is where it's at. So Brian is a frequent top-rated speaker at conferences worldwide, including Microsoft TechEd, Dev Connections, Dev Teach, and others. He is the author of Developer's Guide to Microsoft Prism 4, Developing Applications with Windows Workflow Foundation, Smart Client Deployment with ClickOnce, and Data Binding in Windows Forms 2.0, as forementioned. Brian got started programming as a hobby while flying F-14 Tomcats in the U.S. Navy, later turning his passion for code into his current career. You can contact Brian through his blog at briannoise.net, that's B-R-I-A-N-N-O-Y-E-S.net, or on Twitter. Welcome, Brian. Welcome back. All right, thanks. Yeah, it doesn't, uh, doesn't seem that long ago, but that bio was definitely out of date. Yeah, I, I got a <laughs> feeling we should have updated it the last time you were on. Sorry about that. Yeah, it was a couple of shows back, I suspect. Yeah. So what's, uh, what's up with you? What's up with PRISM? Well, Prism is now released. I, think I was just glancing at that last show because I was trying to remember what we talked about last time, and it right. was uh, virtually the same topic, but uh, sort of a look ahead uh, before we really got started in earnest with what Prism 4 was going to become, and now Prism 4 has been out since November. Now, have there and, really uh, been four versions of Prism? 
Um, actually, more if you go by full releases. They uh, the the one I was first involved with was the very first release, which up until this release it wasn't formally called Prism. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were weirdness at Microsoft about uh, releasing under the Prism code name, mm-hmm. and so that we had to have this you know typical big long unintelligible Microsoft name, which was the Composite Application Guidance for WPF and Silverlight. Nice, right which no one could say that, so everyone just referred to it as PRISM anyway. But, uh, yeah, I was involved with PRISM 1 basically back in, uh, we built that in January through June of 2008. And then they, and I do this, you know, switching between we and they because I was deeply involved and kind of peripherally involved and then back deeply involved. Um, And so they did a 2.0, 2.1, and 2.2 releases in between, and then jumped to four and did the version alignment that a lot of other stacks did uh, with .NET four. So there was no Prism three in between. Well, we I asked this question the last time you were on too, and that is okay. Composite applications. I build composite applications. I build a data layer and I build a UI and I build you know if I'm using a model view view model or another pattern for presentation. Um, why do I need Prism? What is, what exactly does it give me that I couldn't do by myself? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. So composite is one of those heavily overloaded terms like many that we have. Um, and composite in this context is all about composite within the UI layer or presentation layer, if you will. Uh, basically saying, you know, way too many apps out there were built with file new project and just start dumping code in the code behind of the window. Right. And uh, next thing you know, you have kind of like a customer I'm working with now who will go unnamed that, you know, they've got the form that has over 50,000 lines of interwoven, messy, nasty code in there. Mm. And that gets just a bit hard to maintain. So it's all about breaking it up, putting in smaller pieces. But as soon as you do that, you, you know, run into other challenges, which is how do you get all those little tiny pieces talking to each other? And how do you do that without reintroducing all the coupling that was there by just having it all in one place in the first place? So is this sort of like the custom control idea, but for WPF and Silverlight? No, I'd say it goes way beyond that. Um, it, it's more about, you mentioned MVVM, Model View View Model, as you know, one means to an end of decoupling your application. Mm-hmm. And really that's what Prism's all about, is, is it's got implementations of various design patterns to help you decouple the pieces and parts of your presentation layer. And it doesn't really go beyond your presentation layer, even though some of the stuff in Prism I have had customers use. For example, we have a, a modularity feature that uh, I had one customer actually use that within a Windows service that had nothing to do with UI. Mm. Um, and the, the loosely coupled events feature, which we can talk a little bit about that, theoretically could be used in any application. But it's really more about decoupling the presentation layer and the bits and pieces that make it up. Um, So the, you know, MVVM is actually formally a part of it now. That's one of the Prism 4 in terms of, you know, what's new about it compared to the previous releases. That's We had three main focus areas in Prism 4, and one was some formal MVVM guidance. Um, You know, there's lots lots of MVVM guidance out there scattered around and lots of blog posts and various articles and stuff and, and I've been pointing to a lot of those for years and teaching yeah. people this in my classes, but there's not really been any, you know, semi formal one stop shopping how do I do MVVM guidance. So is uh, is, is Prism as much about guidance as it is about technology? 
It is. Well, you know, it, PRISM comes out of Microsoft pa- Patterns and Practices, mm-hmm. and their whole charter is to provide guidance to the community on how to implement best practices. And, you know, over the years, they've they quickly evolved into doing that in the form of code plus documentation in the form of app blocks and enterprise library and software factories and so on. So it's, you know, similar to some of those things, although I sometimes hesitate to say that because I'm sure there's some PNP people that will hate me for saying this, but mm-hmm. some of the stuff PNP has put out has been great and some has not been so great. Yeah. And I actually, there's certain things that are still consider, considered current that I often recommend people don't even use. Um, so, you know, the fact that it comes out of there is, is both a curse and a blessing. There's a lot of really smart people in, in PNP, and it was great working with the team there. Um, but there's a lot of people out there that sort of dismiss anything PNP puts out because of, you know, past history of certain things they've worked at, worked with that weren't that great. So, but, yeah, in, in answer to your questions, at a high level, it is just guidance, but it's guidance in the form of documentation, samples, and basically a reusable framework of sorts, although they hesitate to call it a framework for various technicalities. But, you know, to you and me, it's really just a little lightweight framework for doing some of these patterns. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our good friends at Telerik. We've been blown away by the uptake and the quick adoption of Silverlight. It's no secret, though, that the platform didn't provide for consistent integration with the web analytics services. Well, not anymore. As you might have already heard, Microsoft announced its Silverlight Analytics Framework, which solves the above-mentioned problem. But what's also interesting is that Telerik already provides support for the framework. Telerik's the first UI components vendor to offer handlers for the Silverlight Analytics Framework. Using RAD controls for Silverlight, you can immediately benefit from the advantages of the platform and start tracking the statistics of your applications. You can read details and download the handlers at Telerik.com slash Silverlight. And, hey, don't forget to thank Telerik for supporting .NET Rocks on their Facebook fan page, Facebook.com slash Telerik. So give me an example of, uh, of a situation in which I'm, you know, I'm setting out, and I understand XAML, and I understand how to separate. I mean, XAML allows you to separate your presentation layer from your code, and let's say I've got, you know, some stuff that I've done in Blend. Let's say I'm even that sophisticated. And I'm dropping those in my WPF application. And um, and I've coded it with data binding. And I'm, you know, so so I don't have code behind. Like, everything's in the XAML. Maybe I've got a couple little pieces of code, but nothing really major. And then, uh, you know, I can swap those things in and out. Do what I need to with a little just smart architecture. I can... Uh, I can reuse those things and 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 as you say, decouple them. What um what kinds of problems am I going to run into that if I had just started with Prism, I would have avoided in the first place? Okay. Um, well, part of it, you know, by your description, you've already avoided part of it if you're doing an MVVM or. You know, at least a UI separation pattern, as we call them in the meta sense, mm-hmm. which would include MVC and MVP, although most people in WPF and Silverlight are doing MVVM these days. Right. So if you've already taken the step to figure out one of those patterns and use it well, then, you know, you, you've fought the first part of the battle. And, and like I mentioned, that was one of our thrusts in PRISM 4 was to put some documentation samples around the MVVM pattern so people had kind of a, a Microsoft-endorsed place to go to figure out how to do 
do MBVM. Okay. Um, and that works. And really, that's all you need uh, if you're doing a fairly small scale app. And then small scale, on you know, in my head, that means maybe a dozen to two dozen screens max. Um, once you go beyond that, you know, there's awful lot of customers I work with that are building big, you know, banking, insurance, medical, various uh, domains like that. They're building apps that have hundreds of screens. Mm-hmm. And once you get into that big of an app, you run to a couple of forces that you have to address. And one is separating the code, basically. Um, you know, you really don't want to have one big Mondo project with all the screens and stuff in one place. And even breaking it up into just class libraries with user controls is not always quite enough separation because you might want people to work kind of completely autonomously from the others, uh, especially when you start getting into distributed team. If I've got a team in India and a team in the States, uh, with the time zone differences there, it gets challenging and you got to minimize communication between the teams. So if they can work on completely decoupled pieces of code, there's you know a much better ability to address that problem. I see. And if you're just you know dumping everything into into the main project and class libraries, it, it's very easy to introduce dependencies that you don't even realize are there until you start running into contention because someone else has got something checked out or you know they're changing it and you're changing it at the same time and that kind of thing. So one of the first things that Prism addresses is the ability to kind of slice your presentation layer up into what we call modules, um, which that alone is kind of an overloaded term. But in the context of Prism, it means separating things uh, in a Silverlight app. You actually use separate Silverlight application projects. With WPF, they are, in fact, just class libraries. But you design them in such a way that they're completely decoupled from the main application, which we call the shell. Uh, and they're completely decoupled from each other. So you can work on them, you know, almost independently. There's always some point of shared code, right? Mm. There's always interfaces and constants and things like that that you have to have some sharing through a class library. But the core logic code, the the uh, screens in the form of XAML themselves, that can all be completely separated and decoupled. Okay. And I take it that this is, you know, Visual Studio friendly. This is something that lives in Visual Studio. What kind of... Uh programming interfaces do we have with prism out of the box it's pure code so that it's, oh, it's basically four libraries that you would just potentially add references to but uh, a lot of people have to like to have a little bit more uh you know click 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 kind of starting point right with with something like prism so there are some templates we didn't quite get them done in time for the release in november uh, so right now, the only place that I know to find them is on David Hill's blog. He's one of the program managers at PNP. Hmm. If you just go search David Hill Prism Templates, uh, you'll probably find a blog post from January, and we'll add a link to the, the show notes okay. uh, for that. And uh, you can find some Prism 4 templates, project templates that plug into Visual Studio. Um, and those will – there is a, a, a little bit of, you know, Five minutes or less, I'd say, when you first get started with a Prism project of adding references and creating a bootstrapper, and there's some common activities that you go through in setting up your main project and then setting up each module. Mm-hmm. And so this just kind of lays down all that, that boilerplate code for you. The only downside to them uh, in their current incarnation is similar to like the WCF uh, service library template that's part of Visual Studio. The one thing that I always curse that thing for every time I use it is, 
you know, it sets you up with a Hello World WCF service. Yeah. And it's like, well, that's great the very first time I do a WCF project, but every other time it's this extra step to go kill that code. Right. Well, it's just like the VB module. It keeps hitting drop and you create a new project, yeah, right? right? Like, the, yep. They, they yep. see things in these templates that just never seem to go away. <laughs> it, yeah, they, they really need kind of the uh, the approach the ASP.NET team's done where they have the empty ASP.NET site. Yes. And then they have the ASP.NET template that's, you know, fully populated with login and all that stuff. Right. Yep. That's the way to do it. So so that sounds good. And and you think uh, eventually we're going to get, you know, new project types so the templates will be built right into Visual Studio? Or is that something that's avoided purposely? I don't think it's avoided purposely. You know, my understanding of the original charters of uh, patterns and practices was they were supposed to go out and, and figure out what the best practices were, formalize those, provide guidance on those, and then theoretically any, you know, patterns and implementation of patterns they came up with would make their way back into the framework. Okay. Um, and in fact, PRISM 4 itself, well, actually PRISM itself, I should say, uh, PRISM 1, has kind of an interesting genesis if you go back in the, the annals of history because there was a, a thing that made it to public beta called Acropolis. Right. So Acropolis was, or Alexandria? Uh, it was actually Acropolis first and turned into – part of it turned into Alexandria, which right. turned into WCF RIA. Hmm. Um, so it was actually Acropolis was one back a ways that uh, was – was similar to what Prism become became at least part of it. Uh, they were basically it was a composite UI patterns based thing in the early days of MVVM and extensibility. Uh, you know, before MEF existed and stuff, it had some of the same concepts of building modular pieces, bringing them together dynamically at runtime and so forth. Mm -hmm. But they also signed up to a bunch of other pieces of functionality, um, and and it basically became. At least my my perception of what happened is they signed up. They said yes a few too many times and collapsed under the weight of their requirements, and so it was officially shelved a ways back. And then out of it, they uh, uh, my understanding is they kind of went over to the the PNP team and said, "Well, we still need something for doing composite apps in w, uh, WPF only at the time." And later they added Silverlight support, and so Prism was launched. Okay. So Acropolis was part of it, but your tie to Alexandria you're mentioning is part of that other set of requirements that, that they shelved was what eventually became WCF RIA services. So you, I think you just answered my next question, which is Prism, uh, Prism supports Silverlight as, as well as uh, WPF? Yes, absolutely, yes. Since right. 2.0, the, the main thrust of 2.0 was to basically port everything we had done in Prism 1 over to Silverlight 3. And then the subsequent 2.1 and 2.2 releases just brought it up to date with, with service packs and then Silverlight 4. Okay. Um, so there, there wasn't much. There were a t few tiny little bits of new functionality in the various Silverlight 2 – or, I'm sorry, Prism 2 releases. Um, but really, you know, the, the major new functionality didn't come in until Prism 4. Okay. And um, what's new in Prism 4 that wasn't in 3? That'd make it new. Well, part of it, like I mentioned, is the MVVM guidance, but that's okay. kind of unique in that it's not officially part of the Prism libraries. There's a, there's a few bits and helper uh, bits and pieces of helper code that we ended up developing in the process of developing the MVVM, MVVM guidance that are in the Prism libraries. But you can basically use the MVVM guidance part of Prism for 
even if you don't use any other part of PRISM. And that's true of PRISM in general. That's one of the things we had as an upfront design goal is uh, its predecessor, CAB, the Composite UI Application Block for Windows mm -hmm. Forms, um, had a lot of the same design goals. But what you ended up with, in fact, I saw a tweet on this yesterday from, I think it was uh, Scott Hanselman or Pete Brown or something, made a comment about CAB being a uh, a tightly coupled framework for building loosely coupled applications. <laughs> uh, and it's, it was a very accurate description as the cab was this all invasive thing that, yeah, you could build these loosely coupled modular Windows Forms apps with, with uh, cab, but it was so like interwoven nasty in your code that it was like your, your app was now and forever tightly coupled to cab. Mm -hmm. And Prism, we tried to take a much more loosely coupled approach, even in the framework itself that, you can use any one portion of Prism without using any of the others. They kind of build on each other to to form a coherent whole. But you know, if, for example, we have a feature called the the uh, event aggregator that is a form of loosely coupled events uh, or PubSub messaging, basically. And there's a couple other you could call them competing frameworks out there that we could touch on called MVVM Lite and uh, Calibern are two of the most popular ones. Right, sure. And each of, each of them has a very similar feature called the Messenger in their case that's a PubSub, you know, messaging kind of construct for them as well. So that's one of those if you had already been using MVVM Lite and you want to use their stuff for doing your MVVM and you want to use their Messenger, but then you say, oh, but I do want to break it up into modules and have those dynamically come together – you can actually use, you know, a mix of MVVM Lite and, and Prism's modularity and UI composition is another feature that was there in version one. So you can bring all these things together. But the MVVM guidance part of Prism 4 is, is kind of totally separated. You know, it's mostly samples and documentation about the pattern and not a lot of framework-y type code to support it mm -hmm. other than a view model base class and a couple of helpers. Now, what about re-services? Is that also an option? It is certainly an option to use RIA services in a in a Silverlight-based Prism app. Uh, I've built a number of those already with customers, but really Prism itself has nothing to do with RIA services on its own. Okay. Prism is, uh, you, you know, to try and describe where it fits in the architecture to people, it's pretty much, it doesn't have anything to do with your XAML, really. I got it. Um, it, it doesn't have anything to do with beyond the back end of the presentation layer. Uh, it's all about decoupling within the presentation layer, and, and RIA services is really a bridge between the presentation layer and the back end. Mm. Okay. So it's kind of like RIA services can sit underneath Prism in a way, um, but Prism doesn't really have to know anything about it. And Windows Phone 7 support? Yes, actually. the uh, They were launching, the PMP guys had a separate project going on concurrently with us on the Windows 7 uh, phone guidance. Windows Phone 7 guidance, getting dyslexic there. Um, and so one of the team members, Bob Brumfield from Microsoft, was working on both teams. And so there's a very limited subset. You know, when I talked about the, the scale aspects of Prism and, you know, some of Prism really only making sense once you get into dozens of screens, you know, if you've got an, a, a Windows Phone 7 app with hundreds of screens, you've probably got some confused users and you've got yeah. bigger problems. So. Some of the functionality of Prism doesn't really make sense in the context of a of a uh, phone app, but things like the loose a couple of events and the commands, I think, are the main parts they they ported over, so they work fine on Windows Phone as well. By the way, I've uh, tiny URL'd a nice part of the documentation that has an introduction to Prism, and has some really nice 
graphics and things to to drive home the the uh, the the ideas at tinyurl.com slash prism for intro. And uh, that essentially goes into the uh, documentation, but it's the introduction. Uh, did I see that MEF is now a part of Prism? Yeah, uh, so that was yeah, we were kind of walking through the, the features of Prism Four. I should probably summarize and then drill down. But uh, the the three things in Prism Four that are new over what was there before is is MVVM guidance, MEF support, and uh, some new navigation functionality for logically navigating between screens. And so the MEF support is basically taking our modularity functionality that's been there since PRISM 1 and making it so MEF is an option for your dependency injection container under the covers. Since we first released, one of the upfront design goals of PRISM was to be agnostic of what dependency injection container you use. It does presume you're using one under the covers. Um, and it usually only makes sense to use one and one only and not have, like, Unity and MEF. So it's kind of an either-or decision at this point. We uh, we shipped the first version supported out of the box. We had implementation for Unity, but you could – it basically was decoupled at the PRISM library level. It was decoupled from the particular container. So there's implementations out there, for example, for, for uh, Structure Map and um, Castle Windsor and a couple of others. Out nice. on some of the open source sites, but uh, part of Prism Four was just to re- basically re-implement our modularity stuff against uh, MEF as the uh, backend dependency injection. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight Four, or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only 6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of happy .NET Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Now, does the composite approach extend all the way to the end user? In other words, do we let the end user sort of build their own view or their own application out of modules, you know, sort of the way you can, you know, hide and show toolbars or or other oh, things. Oh, you're thinking SharePoint kind of yeah, exactly. type of thing? Yeah. Uh, you could certainly build that kind of thing with Prism because one of the core features that's been there since the start is something we call a UI composition, mm-hmm. which really means the ability to dynamically plug in and, and potentially take away views. Um, most of the customers I've worked with do it more just to build things in a loosely coupled way and have them come together as a coherent whole at runtime for the user. Mm. Uh, I have not seen any specific implementations that are, you know, SharePoint portal-like. It depends on what grant, you know, what the manifestation of that is. Uh, certainly, I've worked on implementations with customers where we uh, have something like, you know, a combo box that when you drop it down and select something, a whole new view plugs in as sort of a child view within a parent view. But nothing that has a, a, at least I haven't directly worked on something that has some of the, the surrounding Chrome, if you will, for end users being able to select which views they want to plug in ad hoc anywhere in the portal kind of thing. But you could you could definitely build something like that. Well, that's cool. I mean, I, I kind of like that idea of allowing, you know, uh, end users to sort of build their own stuff if they know what they're doing, of course. But uh, that's just an idea. So your 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 basic idea is that you're you're 
user interface programmers are the final uh you know the final station in the assembly line that they just take these components and they put them together and they test out an application but it's very easy to create custom views for different personas in the in the business process yeah exactly i mean basically you know the experience of building a prism app is that you spend a, a tiny bit more time up front in kind of laying down the structure of your presentation layer and deciding, for example, what modules are you going to have, how you're going to decompose the functionality at a macro level. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of the common ways people do to, to slice and dice that is, is like, you know, ISVs in particular, if they're building an application that has different feature sets that people actually have to pay, you know, different dollars if they want this feature or that, then that's obviously something you want to be able to turn on or turn off and maybe not even ship physically the the DLLs to the customer if they haven't paid for that kind of stuff. Right. So the you know in that case you absolutely have to have that decoupling between that chunk of functionality and the rest of the application. And so Prism kind of forces you down the path of building that as a module. Well, it doesn't force you, but it's one of the ways you can choose to allocate things to modules and have that built independently of the rest of the app and just have it plug in dynamically. Um, and other ways people break it up. I had a customer recently that was breaking it up based on different, they had kind of uh, three or four main personas to the app or, or, you know, user roles. And those different personas had different sets of functionality that they could, uh, could invoke. So they use those, those boundaries of the different personas to break up the features that, you know, only admin should get to into a separate module mm-hmm. and then add on the next set of features that only super users could use and so right. on. So there's different ways you can decompose and decide what goes into what module, but the modularity functionality is there to bring it all together uh, very simply at runtime. And it means that once you get that basic infrastructure laid down up front, then most of the rest of the app development is just, you know, given developers working within the boundary of a, a single module, which, like I mentioned, is really at its root, it's mainly one Visual Studio project. And they're just creating views and view models and calling services and things like that from their view models and just focusing on essentially vertical slices within the application. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm excited that Prism has persisted long as it has because that was the battle with this guidance is always they do something and then it would disappear and they do something else and disappear. And now that it's gone through a few iterations and it's gotten better, I almost feel like I can trust it more. Oh, it's definitely, you know, trustworthy. P&P has had uh, definitely had some products in the past that sort of came out in an initial form that showed a lot of promise and then they just kind of withered and died. Yeah. Um, Prism's definitely not one of those. It's, it's got legs like Enterprise Library has legs because there was significant initial adoption of Prism. Um, and, and there's a, I'll try to track down a link to put on the show page. Um, there was a list that uh, some MVPs gathered a while back of all the companies they could find that were willing to say, yes, we're using Prism in our app. And it was a pretty substantial list of, you know, Fortune 500 companies and stuff. There's also, unfortunately, Microsoft, for whatever reason, won't won't disclose what of their own apps they're using Prism in. Um, right. But I've been exposed to some of the some of the names on the list, and and it's kind of surprising. It's you know it's major commercial consumer products hmm. from Microsoft that are using Prism itself. So uh, you know it's it's got traction with important customers that they can't afford to abandon, including themselves. So it's not going to go away anytime soon. 
Well, and that's what you want to hear, right? Is the kind of commitments that make them not be able to walk away from it. Yeah, exactly. Are there any types of applications that uh, PRISM just gets in the way for? Well, I think it's more of an incremental thing. I can't think of a single, you know, even little demos and things that I write, a uh, single app I've worked on in the last few years where I didn't use some aspect of PRISM in it. And, you know, one of the things right off the bat is commands. Uh, Carl, it sounds like, you know, you're well familiar with the MVVM pattern, and I'm sure a lot of listeners are. Mm-hmm. As soon as you start doing MVVM, it becomes critical to have a good command object that you can use to expose commands from your view model and hook up to it from your views to make things happen in the view model. And if you're in uh, WPF, there's a built-in command implementation of routed commands, but it's all tightly coupled to the visual tree and isn't a candidate. And if you're in Silverlight, there's not even an implementation built into the framework. So you got to get a command somewhere. It's not it's not exceptionally hard to write your own or copy one from somewhere. But Prism's got a well-built, you know, well-tested, robust one built in. So, you know, pretty much every app I build, I'll grab a reference to Prism and just use its delegate command class as the thing I use to bridge that gap. Um, and that's, a, you know, a very lightweight usage of, of Prism, just a single class. Uh, but then there's other things that I find myself using more and more. Is we have a few um, behaviors, which is kind of a whole separate topic I think you've touched on in some other talks. But you know, behaviors are a little bit of uh, glue code you write that you can put into the XAML, and it uh, can either add functionality to an existing element or in the scenario of MVVM, you can use it to bridge between the view and the view model to avoid writing code behind. And so we've got a few behaviors that we added to Prism uh, to facilitate our MVVM guidance that I use a lot now as well, just as little chunks of functionality that I can pull in. You know, it's I treat Prism more as a toolbox with, you know, everything from power tools down to, down to basic screwdrivers. And uh, so, you know, I find I can use it. I do use it in just about every app. Uh, it's the degree of usage that depends on the scale of the app, and that's where I mentioned before that it's a fairly small-scale app. I'll probably just use commands, maybe a few behaviors, and uh, the other feature is our loosely coupled events can be handy in letting – once in a while you have, like, view A and view B in the user interface that there's some kind of uh, interaction there. The user clicks over here, something happens over there kind of thing, but you don't want to wire those things together directly and have tight – Tight coupling between them, so it becomes something somewhere that you can use our loosely coupled events. It's it's a very simple mechanism where you effectively have one line of code to publish, one line of code to subscribe, and then a couple lines of code just to get access to the service, which is called event aggregator, uh, to get it all wired up. But extremely easy to use once you see the coding patterns, and it's a you know by putting a middleman in between the the two parties, it means it's so that that those two parties can stay decoupled from each other. And so things like that I'll use all over the place. But the the pieces that you, you kind of have to have a larger scale app to justify using are the uh, the regions, which is the UI composition with a ability to dynamically plug in views and the modularity feature where you start building or, or breaking up your app into these uh, loosely coupled pieces. Brian, how easy is it to retrofit Prism into an existing project? Or is this really a greenfield tool? No, that was another one of our upfront design goals because, with uh, again, with the predecessor cab, you literally had to start with line one code of your program. You know, in program.cs main, right. you had to alter your application.run to use cab. 
you know, we did not want to do that to people. And so we, part of our development process, we went through and we took, uh, there's a great sample app out there for WPF. If people haven't seen the Family Show app written by right. uh, our friends at Vertigo, Scott, Scott Stanfield's company. Yep. Um, that app we took as a, just to prove that we did write it in such a way that you can, you know, walk up to an existing app and start lighting up new features with Prism. We took the fully implemented Family Show app and we basically added some functionality to the little pop-ups. If no one's ever seen that app, it's basically a genealogy app that shows a, a family tree graphically with 2D vector graphics. Um, and you can mouse over the little stick figures that represent people and it'll show a, a smart tooltip with various pieces of, you know, historical information about the person and the picture and so on. And so we added functionality, you know, into the tooltips basically uh, as plug-in views using Prism. Uh, we added some totally separable views that when you clicked on something, you could, I forget what site we went out to, one of these, uh, you know, dictionary type sites, to, or uh, but a person-oriented dictionary type site that uh, it would go do a lookup on that person's name and, and find, you know, any related facts. So we, you know, added new functionality to Family Show just by adding Prism in. It was minimally invasive. Um, we basically had to add about, you know, somewhere between 10 to 20 lines of code in the main form as a, you know, a hook into the main application. And then the rest of the code was completely separable. Um, so it, it, we sort of proved out our design that we wanted to make it so you could jump into an existing app and add Prism features later. And that was that was to do the full-blown regions and modularity type stuff. If you're talking commands and event aggregator and that kind of thing, you know, it's it's just add a library reference and, uh, you know, add a line of code kind of, kind of stuff. It's not really any kind of architectural changes needed at all. Well, cool. Well, that's the way you want to work, right? That's the big thing is, can I slide this in there? Is it a gradual transformation that you sort of add piece, add piece, bit by bit, Prism permeates the app? Um, it can be. Uh, I mean, to really fully leverage Prism, you're sort of better off to, you know, go read up on it ahead of time and, and fully leverage all its features. Um, but you can definitely, like I said, once you once you commit to doing the modules and the, the UI composition part, and it does become part of your development um, or your development patterns. So you'll d define a view. You'll use our, our region functionality to plug that view into a parent container. Uh, you put that view out into whatever module it belongs to, and you'll have the wiring to get the modules loaded up as part of your initial infrastructure. And then the kind of incremental part you're talking about becomes, you know, if there's some new feature set that comes along. For example, I'm working on an app for a customer right now that uh, – they deal with uh, scientific devices, and one of their challenges was that they needed to continually add new devices to the system, but they didn't want to have to go do open-heart surgery on the central nervous system of the app every time they added a device. And so we've put together a prison-based architecture where each time they, you know, put out a new release, if they want to add one, two, ten new devices, they just add, you know, one, two, ten modules either a device per module or multiple devices per module and uh, plug it into the system. So, you know, part of it besides just the loose coupling aspects I was talking about is the, the modularity functionality also forms a, a extensibility mechanism as well. Sure. And naturally, I mean, like I mentioned, some of the new functionality is based on MEF. Um, it turns out that, you know, MEF on its own can do a lot of the stuff that our modularity does. 
So our implementation on top of MEF is fairly lightweight. We're really just kind of delegating to MEF to do a lot of the stuff we had to do more manually before when we were using Unity. Um, but, you know, it, it basically provides an extensibility mechanism to literally just drop a new DLL, you know, into your app and have it light up somewhere within the app as long as you put the hooks in ahead of time to uh, have the plug-in points via Prism. So what's next for Prism? Is there more to do? Um, well, there's always more to do, but uh, I, I think one thing I'm – I don't know for certain. I, I'm, I actually just sent a note to the team the other day to ask that same kind of question and got vague, vague rumblings back at the most. Um, but, you know, what I'm interested to see is – and this is now me – Speaking not as part of the Prism team, but me speaking as a, you know, a, a person very focused on UI technologies, um, I think we need something like Prism if HTML5 is really going to be tractable for for business applications, for big business applications. There's you know lots of rumblings about HTML5 being a replacement for Silverlight, which I don't think is true, um, but at least being positioned as a as a candidate for line of business type applications once it becomes fully real. And uh, in my mind, you really need some kind of frameworks like Prism or MVVM Lite or Caliburn or some combination of those and other similar frameworks right. uh, to be able to write maintainable, you know, business applications in the presentation layer. So I'm kind of curious to see where they're going to take that. Well, is there anything else that we should uh, talk about with Prism 4 before we, before we call it a day? Uh, no, I guess the only other thing I want to mention that you, you uh, mentioned in my bio there, that, you know, one of the recent books I'm affiliated with, not sole author of, is there's a book called uh, Developer's Guide to Microsoft Prism 4. You know, if people are uh, getting used to using electronic forms of books, uh, you can get that for free, basically, not to subvert the sales of O'Reilly there. But uh, if you just go to the documentation of Prism itself, or if you just go search on uh, CodePlex, the, the key site for Prism on CodePlex is just prism.codeplex.com. For historical reasons, it'll actually redirect to compositewpf.codeplex.com. Um, but there's also a, a spot on the site that um, has the documentation in both PDF and CHUM formats. And one of the, one of the big efforts we did in, in Prism 4, besides the features I mentioned, is all the documentation up to that point was very uh, MSDN library styled, mm -hmm. you know, very short topic, successively hyperlinked, right. which doesn't really make for good cover to cover reading. Yeah. Um, so we restructured all the, really rewrote the docs entirely to be more book form. And so really the, the docs are in the form of a, a book on Prism, um, which I helped co-author, but there is a team of uh, five or six of us working on that. And uh, so that's actually a great place to start now because for years now, you know, since I was first affiliated with it, people have been asking me, how do I get started with Prism? Is there a book on this? And, you know, my answer was always, yeah, I keep meaning to get to that. Yeah. <laughs> so luckily the team made it so I don't have to get to that. I, I got to help write it, but uh, but it was really a team effort, and, and I think it does a good job of uh, giving people a good place to get started and get a you know, in a beach chair, uh, sipping a sipping a cocktail, get familiar with Prism before they have to sit down at the keyboard and start implementing. Awesome, Brian. Thanks very much. It's been enlightening. All right. Thanks, Chad. All right. We'll see you next time on .NET Rocks.
.NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC.